Welcome to IT Availability Now, the show that tells stories of business resilience from the people who keep the digital world available. I'm your host, Sir Voss for Beast, and today I'm joined by Matt Parsons, Director of Network and Security Product Management at SunGuard Availability Service. And we're going to be talking about U.S. critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. Uh, Matt, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show again. Thank you, Sir Voss. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. And I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart, given some of the things we've seen recently with, uh, you know, the attacks that you've seen on the Colonial Pipeline with ransomware, uh, an attack that JBS experienced. And really just from an industry perspective, the influx of activity we're experiencing with customers coming to us to talk about how they can mitigate against, um, you know, cyber threats like this. And, And you're even seeing the government step in in certain circumstances there's a new enhanced cybersecurity for water systems um, component that we've seen present in January. And we're even seeing the strengthen our strengthening American Cybersecurity Act of 2022, which specifically talks about how critical infrastructure must report cybersecurity a- acts within 72 hours and ransomware payments within 24 to the CISA which is an acronym that I didn't even know before I read that article, frankly. Um, you know, and the administration is urging critical infrastructure to even harden their cybersecurity posture further uh, than they have in the past. Now, with a looming threat of cybersecurity attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure being very prevalent uh, given current events and, you know, some of the other components that we've already covered, what has been the most concerning component about these recent attacks? Uh, for me, I think what's most concerning is the reality that our critical infrastructure is not secure, uh, knowing the potential impacts a breach could have. With critical infrastructure, um, it's not just a single company or set of users that's impacted. It's There are financial, operational, even safety and health impacts that could potentially impact millions of people. Uh, For example, the Colonial Pipeline serviced almost half the fuel for the East Coast. Um, Tons of outages and disruption due to the fuel shortage. It impacted the airline industry. A number of health and safety warnings were issued out due to people stockpiling up on fuel and and storing it in plastic bags. JBS Meat Processing processing Company, uh, they supply one-fifth of the meat globally. They were shut down for about a, a week. Uh, they were the largest of only four producers of beef for the United States. And consider an attack on power infrastructure, um, even though this wasn't a ransomware cyber incident. But uh, when you look at the Texas winter storms as a litmus test, uh, that caused $195 billion in damage and over 200 lives lost because of that power outage. Uh, so if you were to look at a, a perfect storm of a coordinated t- attack where, you know, maybe the power, food, and fuel critical infrastructures were hit simultaneously. You can imagine the financial and health impact that would have on millions of users. And I think that's what's really the most concerning to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's no denying that given the way the world has evolved, uh, approaching strategic cyber warfare on critical infrastructure could put um, a nation in a position where you know, with focus divided, maybe they're easier to contend with. But I don't like to assume that's the only reason why these infrastructure entities are 
frequently targeted. Um, I mean, would you say it's solely the payout that they would receive if an attack goes well, or do you think there are other things that come into play, like the attack surface that's exposed or the vulnerabilities that these organizations may have? Yeah, there, there are a number of reasons why an organization could be targeted. Um, obviously, with a larger organization, there, there are going to be just more digital infrastructure and footprint that would allow just more attack vectors uh, that could expose them to hacks and breaches. I think specific to critical infrastructure, uh, financial incentive is, is really a big, big target. Hackers are very smart about who they target and how their time is invested. Um, they are most certainly looking at industry, company revenue, potential impact, if they have cyber insurance, what their coverage is, uh, to really pick out and target who they try and attack and how much they think they can get out of them. Um, for example, the Colonial Pipeline, $4.4 million they paid out. JBS, they ended up paying out $11 million. So anytime you've got a very widespread especially critical infrastructure type breach that you can uh, deploy, your chances of getting a payout on that are going to be significantly higher than any other normal company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while I can understand it's just business, right? And even if there are political or, um, you know, other implications that impact a country's ability to support what it needs to, you know, I'm sure there are components that make these pieces of critical infrastructure more vulnerable, right? Um, what what really puts them in a position where they are the most exposed? I think you uh, touched on it earlier in that they, they are very large. So by nature, they're going to have a lot of digital assets, um, a large sprawl of different applications and systems, which just widens the attack vector. A lot of critical infrastructure uh, also has a number of outdated systems. So there are very old, archaic pieces of hardware applications, which in and of itself um, poses a greater risk for breaches and attacks. And really just a historic lack of regulation requiring security and processes around those infrastructures is kind of what uh, has hurt them the most. Mm -hmm. and, and I won't deny that that makes for the perfect cocktail of vulnerability to put that flag up that says, target me here, right? But would you say that maybe there are some cultural or policy-based components inside an organization where, you know, maybe they view it as, hey, it's not broken, so let's not worry about it, or, hey, let's adopt a model of M&M security, where you know it's hard on the outside but soft in the middle just because that helps us work within our budgets or maybe is it something else no absolutely you're going to see a lot of cases where you know if, if it's not broke don't touch it um, a lot of folks who think if if the outside is secure the in, inside is secure which is absolutely not the case at all mm -hmm. so if, if let's say you were in a position where you were working for one of these large providers of critical infrastructure where would you start? Because I have to imagine it's a pretty daunting task if you're trying to shore up the common vulnerabilities that'll have the biggest impact during a cyber event. Yeah, I think you have to start with a framework that can really kind of guide you holistically throughout the whole process. Uh, one of the more popular frameworks out there is the NIST cybersecurity framework, which breaks it out into a couple different components. The first one is identify. 
you want to identify what processes and assets need protection, um, what data do you have, what critical infrastructure is, is important. Once you understand the threats and, and vulnerabilities uh, and, and what systems you have, then you can move into protecting what you've identified. And the protection kind of involves a process of people, process, and technology. So the technology side of it uh, is going to be things like firewalls, IDS and IPS protection, web application firewalls, encryption, two-factor authentication, file integrity monitoring. And it's things in the security industry you would think are, you know, normal everyday uh, things you would see, but it's not common. So the colonial pipeline hack actually was caused by a breach from a password that was compromised for a VPN user account. Uh, there's no two-factor authentication in there, which would have been able to prevent that hacker from getting in, whether the password was compromised or not. Uh, the process side of it, you want to make sure you've got uh, best practices, as, such as a zero trust model. You've got extensive network segmentation and change controls around all of the security and, and network changes. Uh, to the people side of the house. You want to make sure that they're trained, uh, that they've gotten awareness on email phishing, uh, password policies, using VPNs on unsecured public networks, things of that nature. Um, behind the protect side of it, then there is the detect. Uh, we know that you can put all of the protection mechanisms in place, uh, but it's not going to necessarily stop everything from getting in. So. You want to have a, a very good logging and managed detection and response framework to detect anomalies in the network, user behavior, you know, abnormal logins, processes. And this is a big piece of what the new regulations that the government came out with really hit on. Um, just a quick list of some of the things I saw in that documentation. Um, log retention and review, mandatory penetration testing, ongoing threat hunting, automation reports, uh, SOC, ransomware vulnerability warnings, ransomware threat mitigation activities. So a lot of these things, they're, they're realizing that should be really a, a part of every organization's framework, especially the, the critical infrastructure. Uh, behind detect, there's response. So you want to have an incident response team or, or a plan of action so that if something is detected, there is a you know bit of abnormal network traffic or something odd you've got the ability to quickly react to it, to sandbox, isolate, and mitigate any you know, future spread of, of breach. And then the last piece of it is recover. Um, you want to ensure that worst case scenario, if, if somebody happens to click that bad link or you get hit by that just random zero day, that you've got offsite immutable backups uh, that are sandboxed, you can bring those up in a clean uh, white glove type environment where you can do forensics, weed out any malware or patch any any holes or attack vectors that, that were found and then bring all of that recovered environment up in, in a clean, clean bubble. Mm -hmm. and, and those are all good components when it comes to framework and training and tools and technology because there is no silver bullet, but you know, what comes up pretty consistently and I think is the most challenging piece of this is that people element, right? And beyond training, instilling a culture that supports a good security framework because typically uh, the end user doesn't get 
excited about that zero trust ladder or one more piece of technology that they have to touch in order to get into something, right? That slows down access. So if you don't mind, you know, in a, as a concise fashion as you can, how would you recommend addressing that cultural component? I think awareness is becoming more and more um, profound with, with security, not only with users and being more aware of what they're clicking on and what they're opening, but, but even at, at a, you know, a CEO, executive and board level. In the past, they often viewed security as a cost, you know, an unnecessary cost that just drained and impacted revenue, where nowadays there has been more of a shift to executive leadership and board members uh, asking about and wanting to invest dollars into security, not as a cost model, but as a way to protect the other 98, 99% of their revenue. So there's definitely been a shift in the industry and the people side of it uh, that recognize really the, the criticality for security. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes a ton of sense because now to your point, it is a value add or even a strategic selling point given the criticality of the services and even the data that's captured. So, you know, it's coming up more prominently in investor meetings and really being incorporated into a roadmap to build an organization to the point where they're going to capture a greater share of the market and just be viewed as an industry leader that a consumer feels comfortable consuming their services. Um, So, Matt, I really appreciate the way that you ran through the critical infrastructure and how it relates to security and, and really tried to break down some good takeaways for the listeners of the podcast to incorporate when they start to consider how they're going to tackle this problem. So, you know, Matt, once again, I thank you uh, for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you, Sir Boss. It's always a pleasure. And that was Matt Parsons, the Director of Network and Security Product Management at SunGuard Availability Services. You can find the show notes for this episode at sunguardas.com backslash IT availability now. Please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice to get new episodes as soon as they're available. IT Availability Now is a production of SunGuard Availability Services. I'm your host, Servas Verbeest, and until next time, stay available. Stay available.